This episode of The Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. You're listening to Most Innovative Companies. I'm Josh Christensen. Today we have another highlight from Fast Company's 2022 Innovation Festival this past September in New York City. The panel is called Reinventing the Rom-Com and Making Audiences Fall Back in Love with the Big Screen. It features director, writer, and producer Judd Apatow, Donna Langley, the chairman of Universal Filmed Entertainment Group, and actor, writer, and producer Billy Eichner. Enjoy! Welcome, everyone. I am not surprised to see this very full house. This is an exciting panel. I am really, really excited to moderate it for all of you. Um, This group really doesn't need much of an introduction, but I'll do a quick one anyway. Um, Judd Apatow, on the end, is is one of the most successful. Yeah. Clap, clap. (laughs) I think maybe you've heard of him, one of the most successful and influential filmmakers of the 21st century. Billy Eichner is a comedian, an actor, a writer, and the Emmy-nominated host of the great comedy game show, Billy on the Street. Um, Yep, yep. And has done some Billy on the Street related promotion for the film, Bros, which we're going to be talking about. Check that out. They're hilarious. Um, And Donna Langley is the chairman of Universal Filmed Entertainment Group, where she has overseen the production release of a a really, truly extraordinary slate of films, including a bunch we're going to talk about this morning, um, starting with Bros. So let's start with Bros. So, Billy, you've been working on Bros, a romantic comedy about two perpetually single gay men falling in love for about five years. Let's hear how this movie came to be. Um, Well, someone who's not with us, uh, but uh, my friend Nick Stoller, um, who directed Bros and co-wrote it with me. I acted in a few different projects of his uh, previous to Bros. I had a few scenes in Neighbors 2, and I had a recurring role on his Netflix series, Friends from College. And while we were making Friends from College, he emailed me out of the blue and said, I want my next movie to be a romantic comedy, and he loves rom-coms, I do too. Um, And he said, I think it would be cool if it was about a gay couple, even though Nick's straight. Um, And uh, he said, I would love to write it with you, and maybe you'll star in it, and I'll direct it, and that was the beginning of it. So it it started with a straight man, for better or worse. (laughs) Yes, but I made it very gay after that. I really ran with it. All, you got all the straight out of it, pretty much, I would say. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, the movie is hilarious. I was lucky enough to see it. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, it's the first gay romantic comedy ever released in theaters by a major studio. Congratulations for that, too. And I, I want to pause there for a second and just recognize, like, that is huge. That is incredible. Thank, thanks to these folks. Thanks to these folks. <laughs> We're going to get to them. Uh, My first couple questions yeah. are for Billy. Um, that is history, uh, truly. That is history. Um, what took so long, and why did it finally happen now? Hmm. Uh, you know, Hollywood is, a, is, a, is a, an interesting place, um, and, and I do think that it's often been at the forefront of cultural change. I do think the culture in this country especially has often been one or two steps ahead of the politics, especially in terms of LGBTQ visibility. However, it's not as simple as that. You know, and I do think there was a lot of fear there, you know, and a bit of hypocrisy underneath the surface. And in terms of, uh, you know, the powers that be in Hollywood for many years, which were often straight men, um, you know, questioning whether or not a story that centered LGBTQ characters actually being told and portrayed by LGBTQ writers and actors might scare off, 
you know, the mainstream or straight people or, or, or something like that. And, and the longer something isn't done, the more fear grows around the idea of it happening. And, and that's what happened, you know? Um, and it definitely took too long to make a movie like this. There were people, LGBTQ artists, far more talented than I who should have had this opportunity a long time ago. They didn't, simply by a matter of being born too soon. Um, but I'm very, very grateful. I know everyone in the cast who is all LGBTQ is very grateful to have the opportunity now and very grateful to Universal and Judd for finally making it happen. And not only making it happen, but allowing me and the cast to, to make uh, not only what I, I think I hope is a really funny movie, but a really honest, authentic movie about how these men and these LGBTQ folks live our lives. Um, last question for you in this opening little run here, then we're going to open it up. Um, did you feel the pressure of that first while making the movie, being that first? You know, you don't sit around and say, we're the first. You know, we didn't even know we were the first. I don't know. Some people don't think we're the first. You know, I don't know. So it, it's like, you don't, you don't sit down and say, let's write a historic scene. You know, or, and you don't sit down and say, let's write a gay movie. You know, Nick and Judd are straight men. I'm gay. We're both bonded by the fact that one thing we all love is making, making art, whatever you want to call it, making movies, making content that really makes people laugh out loud. So our goal was to make a hilarious, heartfelt, honest movie. We try to remove the pressure of it being the first gay this or the second gay that off of ourselves and just focus on it being really funny and moving, not just for LGBTQ folks, but for everyone. These stories should be for everyone. That's the whole point. Um, and again, I'm very grateful that um, the folks in, in charge allowed me to do that. Yeah, great. Um, Donna, uh, you have a really strong record at Universal of making hits out of not just not, uh, you know, kind of uh, rebooted or sequeled or kind of old IP that is being re-upped, which, uh, as we all know, uh, has become extremely common in Hollywood in not just recent years, but the last decade, two decades. Um, uh, but you've also made a lot of big movies by underrepresented filmmakers. Um, some examples of this are Straight Outta Compton, Get Out, Girls Trip, and now Bros. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, I mean, sort of picking up on what Billy just said, the degree to which that's um, something you deliberately try to do versus just looking for great storytelling and sort of what are the pleasures and hurdles of doing, of making movies like that? Yeah, I'll add Bridesmaids to that list as well because yeah. that was the first when Judd made that movie. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, well, you know, first of all, I, I like to make what I like. You know, um, I mean, yes, there has to be a business rationale to it, but, you know, things that um, when I hear the idea, when I hear the story move me and move my, you know, my, my, my colleagues back at the studio. And when Billy came in to pitch this movie and he just, you know, he, he talked about honesty and he talked about what this movie would be and what it wouldn't be and that it would be this incredibly honest look at, um, at a gay relationship. You know, I thought, well, we've never seen that before. And that authenticity is going to be something that will speak to people. Um, you know, so, and, and that's what we're always looking for, right? That kind of original thing that um, people can talk about, that water cooler thing, right? Um, and then also, I, I think it is uh, just on the sort of commerce side of things, because we do have to make a living. Um, it's, it's just good business to make movies for people where they see themselves in the movies. And, you know, as Billy said, I think Hollywood has this, um, 
you know, it's had a tradition of making films that tend to be homogenized and cookie cutter because they kind of walk this line of um, ubiquity. And so when you color outside of that line a little bit, um, you know, what we've found uh, really, I, and I think by and large, very few examples when, when it hasn't worked, that if you make a, you know, whether it's an identity statement movie or you, ju you just make a movie for people that generally do not get to see themselves up on that screen, a, you know who you're marketing it to, so it becomes very efficient, but then it also, again, becomes a sort of water cooler thing, and it can kind of break out and, you know, and find a, a new, uh, or, you know, it, it finds an audience that, you know, might not necessarily uh, think that it's for them, but they do, because it's good, so. Right, right. Judd, um, you made your name on a kind of movie, um, you might call it a bro comedy, um, that ruled Hollywood for a decade. Um, and then you evolved, um, evolved is maybe not the right word, you started making other kinds of movies. Um, you worked with Lena Dunham, you worked with Amy Schumer, um, and now Billy and an almost entirely LGBTQ cast with bros. Um, tell us about your journey from Ron Burgundy to Billy Lieber. Billy Lieber is, uh, is, is, is Billy's character. In Bobby books. Lieber. But sorry, oh my god. I wrote Billy, Bobby Lieber, my Billy's bad. His brother. We're not That's identical. Yes. <laughs> not a documentary. Yeah. I stand corrected. Oops. I remember when we did the Larry Sanders show, Dana Carver used to always call Gary, because Gary's playing Larry Sanders, Galarry. <laughs> um, well, what was that journey? I mean, I think when you start making things, they're about you and you know, what your experience has been, and then you kind of run out, and then you ask other people, like, well, what's happening with you? <laughs> and uh, try to use some of your skills to help them tell their stories. And uh, you know, certainly a lot of the early uh, movies were about you know, being immature and trying to grow up and having to grow up before you're ready. and. Uh, it's funny, because I was, I, I was talking to Norman Lear. Norman Lear just turned 100, and you know, he was talking about just neuroses he has about when he was a kid and his, his dad, uh, problems he had with his dad, that he's still struggling with at 100. And <laughs> so I, I see all of these movies in some way as coming-of-age tales, because I don't think that ever stops. You're always trying to get over your childhood trauma, your obstacles to connecting with people and, and love. So I learned a lot <clears throat> working with you know, Lena Dunham and Amy Schumer and Kamel Nanjiani. And when I heard this idea, I mean, I just thought, you know, Billy's hilarious. I, as a fan, I just want to see that movie. I think I'm like Donna. It's, it's not really more complicated. If there was a Billy movie, I would go. And then if it's, oh, I could be a part of it, that's fantastic. Great. Um, how much do you, I mean, you know, you've, you, your, your role in these movies ranges from writer, you know, earlier in your career, and still, still now, but especially early on in your career when you were writing a lot of movies, um, director, executive producer, so your creative input varies quite a bit in, uh, in the different projects that you work on. There is a common thread in, in most, if not all, Judd Apatow films, uh, which is that sort of ultimately it's about two people finding each other and like sort of dealing with the struggles of being together. Is that a note that you find yourself having to give a lot to directors and other creators when you're working with them, especially if you're not the director or the writer of the film? And, and how does that sort of play out? I, I think a lot of it just came from Gary Shandling when I worked with him. He just thought you just got to dig deep into your personal stuff. And I, I like working with uh, actors and actresses who want to write 
the movie also. I just think that movies are better when you could tell that they're not a product, that this is so important to Billy. He wants to tell the story and you could feel that care in the movie. And for me, I just think life is really hard and uh, we're all stumbling through. And the, when things go wrong, it's funny. And we always root for other people to figure their shit out. And so that's what I try to encourage people to do. Stories of, you know, what would it take for me to learn the lesson that would make me healthier or happier? Um, Billy, uh, Bros is obviously a, a very original piece of work, to state the obvious, um, but it's obviously made by, by people, you, Nick Stoller, other people that were involved who have seen lots of Judd Apatow movies and lots of rom-coms. Um, were there particular movies that you were especially inspired by when making Bros? I mean, I'm, I, I'm, an, I'm a rapidly aging man, and um, <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I grew up in New York City, uh, was born in Forest Hills. I went to high school downtown. And um, you know, I grew up in an age of romantic comedies, great ones regularly being released in movie theaters, which is not something we get anymore. And I miss that so much, you know? Uh, and I, can, I remember going to see all those movies with my parents when Harry Met Sally and Moonstruck and Working Girl and Tootsie and Broadcast News, which is maybe my favorite one. Um, and they just don't make those movies anymore. They don't make them about straight people, and they never made them about gay people, you know? Um, and so I was influenced by all of those movies, all those great Nora Ephron movies, you know? I, I love Sleepless in Seattle. I love You've Got Mail. Last night we had the New York premiere of Bros at the movie theater on the Upper West Side where I saw You've Got Mail the day it opened. <laughs> um, I know. I know. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> um, and we actually reference You've Got Mail in Bro. So, so you know, I, I love those movies because the characters were allowed to be, they're not avant-garde by any means, but the, the characters are allowed to be smart and witty and literate uh, while also being emotionally messy and complicated and, and all of those things that adults can be. And when I was talking with Nick at the early, in the early part of the process, I said, you know, we do get a lot of content with gay characters now, but where are the adults? Where are the gay adults, you know? Or where are the characters that are allowed to talk like adults, you know? Um, and so that, I'm not saying we made a movie that's as good as the ones I mentioned, but that we were trying to live up to that, that standard. And of course, Judd's movies too were a great inspiration in terms of how um, unapologetic and explosively funny they can be. You know, we have a lot of unapologetically sexy slash funny sex scenes in the movie, and people are like, oh, those sex scenes, oh, I, you know, I've never seen anything like that. I'm like, well, you've seen it, but it's with a man and a woman, right? Um, for years, you know? So, so why can't we do the same thing? And so there were a lot of inspirations, um, but those were the ones that were on my mind. Um, did you have the title from the beginning, or did the title come up some, some point along the way? The title came up pretty early, Bros. I just thought it made me laugh that, you know, this big mainstream gay rom-com was going to be called Bros. <laughs> um, and, and then when you see, I think if you just, if you, if you just see, if you, if you only look at the trailer or the poster, you're like, oh, Bros, because it's about gay people. Haha, <laughs> like, that's ironic. But um, when, when you see the movie, it, there is more meaning behind that. The movie, I don't want to give it away, but you know, I date, I'm longing for this very bro-y guy, and we get into this very funny, complicated relationship. And the movie is mostly there for laughs, but does have some things on its mind in terms of um, how not only the gay community, but I think the world at large has put a certain type of alpha male masculinity on a pedestal. 
you know, as much as we criticize it, we're also secretly looking at it, we're drawn to it. You know, all these guys, straight and gay, showing off their big, tough, roided out bodies on Instagram and acting like it's natural. <laughs> um, and no one really talking about it. Uh, and yet we're drawn to it too. So, you know, Bros speaks to that theme in the movie as well. Yeah. Um, let's talk about the, the state of the rom-com in general for a minute, and Donna, I'm going to put this question to you, um, particularly as a theatrical genre. Um, even before COVID, uh, there were less rom-coms in movie theaters. Um, during the pandemic, the genre kind of surged back, pretty successful on Netflix. Um, All the Boys I've Loved, if I'm getting that title of that movie right, was huge, there were others. Um, where, is, where is the genre now and what is its future um, in general, but especially in theaters? Well, I mean, I hope people are showing up to the movie theaters to go and see a rom-com because we have one called Bros coming out. <laughs> um, and then we have another one, a very hetero one, um, uh, called Ticket to Paradise with, um, with Julia Roberts and George Clooney coming out in a month or so, uh, which is also great. Um, but no, it, it's, it's, um, it is definitely a genre that's been beleaguered, like Billy said, you know, over the last few years. And I think... You know, the movie business is always cyclical. Genres are, or, you know, they always tend to cycle through, some faster than others. Um, and the, the rom-com, I think, is something that was done so well for a period of time with that really incredibly sharp writing and stars that people wanted to see only in those roles, actually, in many cases. Um, and I, I think we sort of lost the, you know, we lost the muscle of that in, in a way. And then I think what often happens, we saw this with, with Judd's movies too, you know, they're, they become kind of copycats that come and then those ones are not as good and they don't do as well and then of course, you know, people like me lose their nerve and don't want to make them anymore and then along comes streaming and then they become the domain of streaming, um, you know, so I, I, I think it's, um, you know, I don't like to talk in absolutes about the movie business because again, it is cyclical, we're all fickle human beings that we change our minds about things. You know, I, I think, um, I, I, I don't, I, you know, you hear things like the death of the rom-com. The rom it, it's not dead. I think it just shows up in different forms. You know, I mean, when I look at Trainwreck, when I think about Trainwreck, Trainwreck is just a modern or a postmodern, whatever you want to describe it as, romantic comedy. It's deeply romantic, um, you know, and, and actually the same thing with Bridesmaids, you know. And uh, Big Sick in a, is a yeah. rom-com. And, yeah. and even King of Staten Island has a little rom-com. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you find that it kind of shows up in, uh, but it's just packaged in a slightly different way. But I'll also say, you know, rom-coms sort of culturally don't get a lot of respect, but what movies are we actually watching over and over and over again throughout our lives? Like, Brokeback Mountain is a masterpiece. I've seen it once. Pretty Woman, I've seen 50 times. Okay? And I know I speak for many of you, all right? I can tell you every line of You've Got Mail, all right? Um, I don't remember that whatever Gary Oldman, Winston Churchill movie. You know? So, so these, are the, these are the movies that we love. And, and, and even I forgot until we started to do these early screenings of Bros, and which we've done now for months, is it is... And I'm, I swear I'm not saying this just to shamelessly plug my movie. It, uh, it is so much fun to sit in a movie theater 
with hundreds of other people, friends, strangers, by yourself, on a date, whatever it is, and laugh with other people. Like, it is a fun, joyful, feel-good experience that you don't get at a four-hour gritty version of Batman, as wonderful as that is. <laughs> um, and and, and it's, a, it's an experience that we haven't gotten in a long time because they don't release these movies in movie theaters anymore. And there's many comedies that are great on streaming, and you, you watch them at home, and that's lovely. But there really is something special and, and comforting and, and joyful about watching it in a theater with lots of other people. You know, you feel like you're at a concert or something. And, and I'm so excited that Bros is hopefully going to bring that experience back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the other thing that I'll just add on the rom-com thing as far as the rewatchability is that the beauty of those movies, when they do come out of the theaters, which hopefully they'll be in for a long time, and come on to our streaming services, you can jump in at any time and watch this 15 minutes and you remember it really well. And it's just, it's, it's almost, if you've seen it before, just as satisfying to watch that part that you love and then come back to it. So, yeah. Rose needs to be watched from the beginning every single <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Except Rose. Sorry. Um, Okay, so let's talk for a moment about the industry in general. Uh, this is a business conference as well as an entertainment uh, festival. So um, just staying on theaters for a second, you know, Top Gun and Minions were huge, huge films that came out in the summer and tons of people saw them. Minions had that sort of organically gentle, uh, the gentleman phenomenon that, that helped as well. Um, then it fell off a little bit. Um, the, the year still looks like it's probably going to be down, um, you know, not surprisingly, given that we're still coming out of the pandemic. But um, Judd, let me start with you on this. I mean, you straddle the creative side of the business and the business side of the business. You know, it could be that we're heading back, God willing, to a world where everybody's just as, as happy and, and uh, to go to theaters and goes as often as they did before. Um, but because of all the innovation that's happened during the pandemic with release windows and movies that are in theaters for shorter amounts of time before going to streaming, maybe that isn't the case. Anyway, what are your predictions? And, and, and let's start with you, Judd. What, what do you see happening this fall and in 2023, um, just kind of industry-wide as far as like people, the, the habits that have been changed during the pandemic and how that might evolve into the near future? I mean, I, you know, for me, I just think if there's a good movie, people will go and, uh, that's as far as I take it. Uh, you know, I think that most movies are not good. I think it's very hard to make a good movie. It's just, it's like a real magic and chemistry has to happen and you can't force it and it's rare. And that's part of why there, there haven't been a ton of great romantic comedies. They're really hard to do. Billy and Nick worked on it for half a decade to get it right. They really cared about it. and. Uh, in my mind, when I think about you know what to do and what I want to see, I just think yeah when you know when there's a new uh, Wes Anderson movie or Quentin Tarantino movie or uh, you know uh, the uh, you know there's just so many things that come out and you're like oh that was big because it was good you know I, for comedy I always think I can't I don't know the amazing comedy that bombed uh, if someone made something about Mary today it would be gigantic they're just very hard to do so. Uh, hopefully young people are having great experiences in the theater and then they just want to go more and uh, it's more fun than video games or staying at home watching streaming. I mean, when I was a kid, I went to the movies every weekend. Me and too. I, was, I was proud of opening the paper and going, I've seen literally every single movie mm -hmm. that's out and you want you know, young people to want to have that experience. 
This episode of Most Innovative Companies is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. Donna, uh, as I mentioned, lots of innovation during the pandemic around uh, distribution windows and things like that. What are the things that you learned during the last couple years that you found kind of most valuable, most surprising, maybe most lasting um, going forward as a studio executive? Um, well, when your industry tells you that theatrical is dead and no one's ever going to come back to a movie theater, which is what it did in 2020, don't believe it and just keep making movies and making good movies that you think people are going to want to go see. And, you know, to that point, you know, we had four movies over the course of the summer that were wildly different. You know, Minions, as you mentioned, Jurassic World, and then Nope, which is Jordan Peele's movie, and Black Phone, um, directed by Scott Derrickson, uh, which is a horror movie, a really good horror movie. And they all did brilliantly. They all did box office, you know, bonanzas and um, and we did great with them and so you know that's probably one of the most valuable lessons I, le- I learned during the pandemic is is you've just got to you know it in good times it's easy to kind of trust your gut and keep going in in bad times you know and particularly in times where you you really everything is changing so rapidly and you know you're you're in this ecosystem where again there's sort of lots of proclamations about streaming is the thing and no one's getting off their couch. You just have to um, you just got to kind of keep going and trust your gut instinct and um, you know be fearless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about marketing uh, entertainment, particularly movies in your case? So. Um, the infrastructure of the the film business uh, is like you know it's is pretty it, it's it's kind of a battleship right I mean there's there's movie theaters um, there the innovation in movie theaters is such that you know we have like the Alamo Draft House we have uh, the big seats now that recline like there's been some innovation in the theater space but still it's you know um, they're big rooms where people go see movies. Uh, it seems like the innovation, uh, a lot of the innovation that we've seen in the last couple of years is, is kind of on the marketing side. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, you're right. Going to see a movie is as analog as it gets, right? I mean, there, it, there, it's just, it, it, it's the it's innovation that is in the movies themselves and as you said, like in the, in the marketing thing. So, you know, an, a good example is The Gentle Minions. Um, you know, we're always trying with the with the with the illumination animation movies to make them um, appeal to people of all ages. You know, they're not like kiddie movies; they're it's subversive humor and things like that. So anyway, we we I mean, we we could not have marketed that. Like we couldn't we couldn't have engineered it. It was it was really organic, um, and it wouldn't have happened were it not for TikTok and the right. ubiquity of that and the and the rate of. Um, the way that the algorithm works and the way that people can sort of pick up on that um, and things just, you know, become popular. But that was really as a result of us doing something for the movie pretty innovative. Um, we went to we went to a, a video director 
with a song that is not in the movie. The video has nothing to do with the movie. I mean, it has some minions and stuff in it, and it is lyrical lemonade, which you, some of you guys may have heard of. And he did, he did this video, and we kind of just put it out there, and it was well in advance of the movie coming out. And it just, it just sort of got, it seeped into the zeitgeist of um, this sort of age range. And then I think it was in Australia where the gentle minions actually happened. It was a bunch of kids who went, who were already dressed in a suit, and because of this sort of video and the song and the, you know, it, in, in it, then it sort of ended up tapping into um, a kind of an emotional core for them. These are kids who have grown up with Minions, with Despicable Me, you know, the franchise is 11 years old. So, you know, they mm -hmm. kind of had it their whole life and they just thought, well, you know what, now we can, we don't have to have our mom drive us to the mall to go see the movie we can actually take ourselves. So, you know, things like that, I mean, again, we couldn't have engineered it from a marketing standpoint, but you know, when we're speaking to our consumer, um, you know, we're not doing it directly in the way that a streamer can do. Um, so, you know, we, ha we have to, our job is to, A, create things that are very sticky within the first three seconds, um, and, and, and B, do it in a way that it doesn't feel like, I mean, with traditional marketing, yes, it's all there, TV spots, all of that, but, you know, we've got to work in the digital space as well, um, you know, to just capture people's imaginations and their attention. What did you do? What, was your, what were your conversations internally when Gentle Minions started to take off? Did you, because that's a tricky spot. You, you, you kind of have to decide we either do something or we do nothing, you know, to, to see how this develops. How did you talk about your marketing folks about that and how did you approach that? I think we looked at each other and said, do we do something? No. Okay, good. I agree. And then we moved on. <laughs> it was really that simple. No, you don't, you just leave that alone. You yeah. know, the minute that, if, I mean, if we touched it and, and it felt like a, you know, a big studio marketing machine was trying to manipulate it, it would have been over. Mm. It belonged to the people, you know. It's, it's funny how like fast all of this has changed because when we did Freaks and Geeks in 1999, um, Paul Feig really wanted a website and TV shows didn't even have websites then and so he set up this website which if you saw now you'd really laugh at how janky it is and people would use their CD-ROMs to get on it and stuff and we asked NBC in the ads for Freaks and Geeks could you just write freaksandgeeks.com at the bottom and they said no because they didn't want to compete with it they didn't want people to know the internet existed <laughs> Yes, um, I, I started, the first place I showed Billy on the street videos many years ago was in my live show here in New York um, at Ars Nova on 54th Street and, and other theaters. And then YouTube came along about a year later and I said to my managers at the time, should I be putting these videos on this YouTube thing? And they were like, no, why would you give your stuff away for free? <laughs> yeah. Right? That was the thinking, which I agreed with at the time. And then a few years later, I said, no, I should probably put them on YouTube and I have a career because of it. Um, but it's interesting to think about that now. Yeah. Um, Don, another, another one for you that's in this, in the same kind of spirit of, uh, you know, I'm not expecting an answer that's going to, you know, talk to us about how we're all going to be watching movies uh, in radically different ways in the immediate future, but on the sort of uh, edges of experimentation in the business, the kinds of things that people are just trying to see how they might work, you know, watching a movie in the metaverse, for example, watching movies in, you know, through goggles or through other ways, what are some of the kind of... Um, uh, formatic like experimentation that's happening around the edges that y excite you and that you think might um, 
achieve some kind of mainstream adoption in the ne you know, near, middle, or distant future? I, I think, um, you know, I mean, you just said it. it it's, it, and I don't think it's about going and watching a movie inside the metaverse. I don't think that's, I don't think that's an interesting use of anybody's time, you know, putting goggles on and sitting for two hours and doing that. You may as well go to the movie theater and have Dolby Sound and all the rest of it, or IMAX. Um, but I do think engaging with characters and engaging with storytelling inside of these spaces is really interesting, and we are looking at some, some things. Um, you know, it really, to us at the moment, and, and by the way, this was a conversation we had, you know, it, thinking about Avatar coming out, you know, I think that movie is what, 15 years old? 3D, you know, all of a sudden, you know, like everyone went crazy about like 3D, every movie has to be shot in 3D. And then, you know, when then we were like, oh, let's not shoot it in 3D, it's too hard. Let's like do tack it on the post thing. And then of course, nobody watches a movie in 3D anymore. So, you know, I, I think, I think just sort of movies are movies, you know, and I, and I don't say that to sort of, you know, not want to innovate and push forward, but the innovation comes, you know, with, again, the content itself. And then, you know, it, it, it is about finding ways to, 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 especially with franchises, keep those characters and keep those storylines alive in, in between. And I do think some of this new technology can lend itself to that. Great, thank you. Um, so bringing it back to bros here, um, Billy, uh, you were, you know, having seen the movie, um, you mentioned this, almost the entire cast, uh, with the exception of Kristen Chenoweth and... Their secret celebrity cameos. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, almost the entire cast are LGBTQ characters. Yeah. yeah. That, that we, we, we've, we've talked yeah. about. Okay. Um, you know, this is a huge moment for representation. Um, you really were intentional, and, and obviously it was very, very much purposeful to make sure that this cast represented lots of other queer identities. Um, talk to us about sort of what's next here, you know, each one of these kinds of films that come out that represent a group that have not had the opportunity to be on the big screen before, it, you know, inevitably leads to the next. So talk to us a little bit about your thinking about that casting and kind of what your hopes are for, um, you know, future progress uh, in the future. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I don't want any, Rose is not making any statements about like, you know, only gay actors should play gay or LGBTQ should play LGBTQ and straight should only play straight. You know, it's art, right? We don't want any rules about that. You know, the whole beauty of acting, both for the actor and the viewer, is watching someone become someone that they aren't. Um, so I agree with all of that from a creative, artistic standpoint. That said, art, especially major studio films, is not created in a vacuum, right? It's a big business. And, you know, historically speaking, the vast majority of high-profile LGBTQ roles were 95% of the time played by famous straight actors, right? And they would win awards, and they were using the roles to show people their range, and I'm so serious, and like, I'm straight, but watch me become gay for an hour and a half. Like, isn't that amazing? Um, and some of those performances are incredible, you know? No one's saying that they're not. It just never worked in the reverse. 
you know? Right. So, so for so long, openly LGBTQ people weren't able to play our own iconic roles, and we certainly were never asked 99% of the time to play the high-profile straight roles, so where does that leave you as an LGBTQ actor? You know, they pat you on the back for coming out, and then they don't give you a job. Um, and so all we were doing with bros is saying, all right, we're looking at a bird's eye view here of the history of LGBTQ casting in Hollywood, and this is an opportunity to say, all right, in this movie, we're gonna let people who've made the bold decision to be openly LGBTQ professionally shine, right? And it wasn't just about me, it was an opportunity for me to pull up all of these other hilarious, warm, delightful LGBTQ performers in my community who I know from my own experience have not gotten the opportunities in a movie like this that they should have, and to give them a chance as well. That's all it is, you know? And also, from a comedy perspective, this is a comedy, right? This is not a sanctimonious movie. You know, we didn't make, bros is not to like made, made to like try to convince homophobic people that gay people are okay. Like, you know, fuck homophobic people. Like, you know, we don't, this is not a movie for them. You know, this is, um, thank you so much. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> no, but um, it's not, you know, like everyone's like, well, what about, you know, conservative people? I'm like, they should stay home, you know, like, <laughs> This is for smart, you know, nice, normal, compassionate people who get it and just want a great comedy. And what we're not doing in this movie is walking on eggshells. Casting LGBTQ actors and actresses and trans people and non-binary people allowed us to make fun of each other, right? Right. Um, because in, my, in the movie, my character works at what we call the first LGBTQ National History Museum. Right, which we actually don't really have one. Like in New York, there's a mu museum of transportation, but we don't have a museum of LGBTQ history. A little strange. Um, and so I think they're working on one now, by the way. They are. The New York Historical Society is, is starting one. Uh, but, but it allowed us, as those characters working in the museum, to make fun of each other and spoof each other, right? Because the LGBTQ community is wonderful, but you know, there's definitely things to poke fun at. And I don't think straight actors would have been comfortable doing that. Right. So there are a lot of reasons why we did that. Yeah. I was going to mention another thing on that vein, but I'm not going to because I don't want to get in trouble again. So um, <laughs> you started writing the movie five, between five and six years ago. Um, a lot has happened in the world since then. Mm -hmm. um, did you make changes to the script, the story? Did the co cultural context behind this creative process that you were in the middle of change in ways that made the film change? I mean, you know, yes, the world evolved a lot in the past five years. Um, I'm a pop culture guy, I like to stay current. You know, I want things to feel relevant to the moment they're being released. But you also, in a movie, a movie's different than a Billy on the Street video. Uh, you know, you want a movie to, 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 to still work in 20 years, even if some of the details, you know, are dated. You want the emotions of it to land. You want the majority of the comedy of it to land. But, you know, what's interesting, and I don't want to give it away, is that uh, my boyfriend's mother in the movie is a second grade school teacher. We get into a little argument about whether or not she's teaching her kids LGBTQ history in school. I wrote that scene in 2019, right? And I actually thought, God, I hope this isn't dated. You know, I hope that, I hope that, you know, it feels like we're making so much progress so quickly, you know. I hope that arguments like this, maybe it won't be relevant in 2020 when the movie comes out. And then even when we shot the movie, I thought, you know, this is funny, I think it'll play comedically, but is this really an issue anymore? 
And then earlier this year, we see Don't Say Gay and, and all of these controversies, not only about LGBTQ history, but about literally saying the word gay in elementary school classrooms. And now that scene has a weight to it we didn't even intend it to have. And it's just a reminder that our rights are always going to be fragile. You know, that this is always a pendulum that's going to swing back and forth. And the more progress we get, the more certain forces politically in the country are going to try to drag us back, backwards. And so um, it's interesting that what I thought might be irrelevant is now more relevant than ever, not for a good reason, but yep. yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's fascinating, yeah. Um, Speed round here. Um, I just wanted to ask each of you kind of what's next. We, we all love your work and want to hear what's coming up after this. So Donna, let me start with you. Um, I am a, uh, I'm going to ask about a particular project actually, um, but I think our audience will be interested in this. Um, I am a little biased. I love journalism movies. Um, Spotlight was one of my favorite movies of the past 20 years. Um, Universal is about to release She Said, the story of Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey's investigation of Harvey Weinstein. Um, this comes out in two months, directed by a female director, Maria Schrader. Um, what else can you tell us about this movie? Um, well, it's gonna be premiering here in New York at the, at the film festival, which I'm really excited about. Um, it's, a, it's a really beautiful movie. Um, it, it's not a sensationalist look at you know, Harvey Weinstein and all the awful things he did. It's, it's not an indictment of the entertainment industry. You know, there are plenty of other things that do that. It's a look at... Um, two young women who have lives and families at home who were doing, you know, doing everything they needed to do in pursuit of breaking the story. And, you know, of course, they, they were onto one version of the story and then they kind of tripped into this, you know, into, you know, just the, the sort of how, you know, how bad it actually was. Um, and it, you know, it really is a love letter to journalism. Um, you know, and uh, but again, there's sort of it, it has a it has a sort of really beautiful humanity to it because you really do kind of get inside their lives, and um, you know, you sort of see them on the subway going to work, and you know, so it's as much that as it is the kind of you know inner workings of the New York Times. We also shot, shot in the New York Times building, which is really um, obviously I iconic and beautiful, and no movie has ever been shot in there before, so that was interesting. But yeah, um, it, it's it's. Uh, you know, and I think it is not to be too sanctimonious about it, but I think it's one of those, you know, yes, there's the book, there's the article, of course, that broke the story originally, but, you know, film is indelible, and I think it's one of those films that, you know, um, whether people want to revisit this time in history or not, I think it's, you know, to what Billy was just saying about rights being fragile, I think it's important, you know, to have films that, you know, that, that yes, this is a very specific event, but it's also about, you know, it's about all the things that we're, rights that we're seeing potentially being taken away, you know, so I think it's an important film to exist. That has a, it, certainly a new um, salience in light of recent events, too, that was it, know, exactly. unknown at the time it started. So, um, Judd, what do we have to look forward to from you? Uh, we shot a movie this summer with the three uh, young men from Saturday Night Live uh, who make the digital shorts called Please Don't Destroy, uh, which will come out this time next year. Great. Looking forward to that. And Billy, uh, I hope nothing except a very great fancy vacation, but what do you have coming up? Um, I think I'm done after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when age. did we get yeah. to I, I did it, I made a movie, that's it, I'm yeah. done. <laughs> no, um, 
I have been very focused on this. I'm not a multitasker like some of these guys. Like they're <laughs> writing 17 movies at once. You know, I don't know. That's hard for me to. I focus on like every joke. You know, like very hard. But um, I am. What am I doing? I'm, I'm gonna. Uh, well, Bros. You know, one of the wonderful things about it being a major studio film is that it's it's opening in 3,000 movie theaters. An R-rated Judd Apatow produced gay rom-com, thanks to Donna and Universal, is opening in 3,000 yeah. movie theaters. Wow. Multiplexes all over North America, and then in October, rolls out all over the world, right? Except for those countries where homosexuality is banned. So, um, uh, so you know, so I'm gonna keep promoting this because I'm so proud of the movie. I really want people to go out there and see it, take your friends, go on a date, go by yourself. I love going to the movies by myself. You know, it's really a wonderful escape from all the bleak news that we deal with and all the anxiety in our lives. Um, and I love making comedies. Uh, I actually, I'm in the early stages of writing a movie uh, with Paul Rudnick, um, who is a, a gay screenwriter that's pretty iconic. He wrote uh, Sister Act and Adam's Family Values and In and Out and many wonderful movies and plays, off-Broadway plays that I grew up watching. We're writing a movie called Ex-Husbands, which is like the opposite side of bros. It's about a big gay divorce. Um, it's like a gay war of the roses. Uh, but funny, you know, funny. Um, and, but we're in the early stages of that. Yeah. Sounds great.